There are two scripture readings for today, both from Paul's letter to the Romans. In the first reading from chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul lays out very concisely, really, the theme of his letter. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. The second reading is Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts, through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, we will be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Thanks be to God for this, his holy word. Thank you, Pastor Janet, for reading our text this day. Appropriate texts for our theme that next week, next Sunday, we're going to begin a brand new sermon series. And the sermon series is called Easier Said Than Done. And next week, with it being All Saints Day, we're going to look at that statement, that statement, goodbye. It is so much easier to say the words goodbye than it is to live without ever seeing that person again, to have no more opportunities to hold a hand or to hear their laughter. We're going to continue with, I was wrong, and then, I'm sorry, I forgive you. It's much easier to say, I forgive you, than it really is to extend forgiveness, especially when we feel we have been wronged so terribly. And then the week before Thanksgiving, the sermon series will wrap up by saying, thank you, thank you. Well, if we're starting a brand new sermon series next Sunday, that means that our current sermon series comes to an end today. And so where we have been is we've been looking at questions, exploring questions, answers to difficult questions, and we have encouraged you all along the way to continue to ask tough questions. 
But we saw that, that what we ask reveals really what is important to us. Who we ask shows who has authority in our lives, whose, whose uh, advice we really respect. But how we ask reveals if we are truly alive and growing or if we've already started to, to die a little bit. No more room for emotional and personal growth. But today we, we explore this question, do we dare to question the church? And the good news is that throughout history there have been people who did ask difficult questions and demand real answers to talk about the theology behind it. Where is God in all this? Is this truly what God intends for God's people gathered together as church? Today is Reformation Sunday. And we know what the word reform means, but we know that for 1,000 years or so, there was just one church, the church of Jesus Christ, the people on the way. And after about 1,000 years, there was a split geographically between east and west, and we know we follow the westward path to Rome, the, the church in Rome, but we know about 500 years or so after that. There were people within the Roman Catholic Church that started to ask some tough questions, started to protest what the church was telling the people, protest the fact that the people were not hearing the word of God in their own native tongues, which made it impossible to know if what they were hearing in, in terms of explanation was really true, if it, if it rang well with their own conscience. And so there was this split, the Roman Catholic brothers and sisters and the Protestant church, the church of the protest. And we are heirs of that. Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, Episcopalian, non-denominational churches, Bible churches. We're all Christian. If someone says, what religion are you? They say, well, I'm Catholic. No, that means you're Christian. What religion are you? I am Methodist. No, that means you're Christian. You just have different expressions of it. And so it all goes back to an Augustinian monk who walked into a castle church. Sounds a bit like a joke setup, doesn't it? You know, a, this priest walks into a bar and you say, why didn't he see the bar right there? Well, you know, but, so on October 31st, 1517, an Augustinian monk walks into the castle church at Wittenberg, Germany, and he nails a notice up on the mighty church door. It was a list, a list of 95 issues that the monk whose name was Martin Luther, proposed to debate. It was not the first event in the Reformation. It was not the last event in the Reformation, but it was certainly a pivotal event. And on top of those 95 uh, uh, issues that the monk had problem with was this statement. I love this statement. Out of love and zeal for the truth. Man, I wish we all had a love and a zeal, a true zeal for the truth. Out of love and zeal for the truth and the desire to bring it to light, the following theses will be publicly discussed at Wittenberg under the chairmanship of the Reverend Father Martin Luther, Master of Arts and Sacred Theology, and regularly appointed lecturer on these subjects at that place. He requests that those who cannot be present to debate orally with us will do so by letter. Do so by letter. The proposed debate never took place, but something far more consequential did out of love and zeal for the truth. And there it is, friends, a tight tie. 
the relationship between Protestantism and higher education spring from the high regard for the truth. Do you hold truth in high regard? It's my prayer that you do. Now, Luther chose October 31st because it was the day before All Saints Day, which is why we in the church celebrate celebrate Reformation Sunday, the Sunday before All Saints Day. But Luther knew that the church's, uh, the church's front door that opened up on a main street was a good place to post anything for a public viewing. He knew that on November 1st, All Saints Day, the church was going to be filled with worshipers, many of whom were educated and literate. His act of posting these 95 theses on the door was basically, in our day, the equivalent of publishing a journal article or taking out a newspaper ad or putting up something on the web, on Facebook, or on a, a website that you, that you form. The Protestant Reformation was a huge part, a huge part of the intellectual, political, and cultural upheaval that was going on in Europe. Of course, it was about religion, but it was also about emerging nation states and political freedom and the radical new notion of human person as autonomous, created to be free, bearing the image of God and given responsibility for the conduct of his or her own life and life together in society. It was about a basic belief about God and God's relationship to the world and to every individual human being. You see, life for many people, Martin Luther among them, was an unhappy struggle to be good enough and to do enough good to persuade God to somehow be less angry and perhaps assign your soul to heaven after an appropriate time in purgatory, which was the Catholic belief. But it was the church that held the keys. Luther was consumed with trying to please God, to get to a gracious God, as he put it. He did everything he could. He prayed, he fasted, he went on pilgrimage. He even inflicted pain on himself through flagellation. He did a pilgrimage to Rome to reinforce his faith and hopefully his trust in God and in one form of self-abuse because he felt he was not good enough, that he was such a terrible sinner. He climbed up the tallest set of stairs that he could find using only his knees. Nothing worked. And it was in his little room, at his desk, while he was preparing a series of lectures on Paul's letter to the Roman church, that the moment of understanding happened. We already heard Janet read to us from that first chapter of Romans. Suddenly he heard about sola fide, faith alone, salvation to everyone who has faith. The one who is righteous, it said, will live by faith. And that really changed Luther. He continued to read on. And in chapter 5, therefore, since we are justified by faith, justified by faith, Luther was brought up in a system where you had to go and make confession and then have some kind of act of penance to, to make yourself clean in the eyes of God. An act of faith? I don't need a priest or a pope. Paul says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to grace, a grace in which we stand. Luther said of that moment, it was as if all the truth in all its fullness burst upon him at that moment and the gates of paradise flew open. And just a few hundred years after that, John Wesley was at a reading 
of what Luther had written in response to those passages, and he felt his heart strangely warmed. It was his come-to-Jesus moment. You see, the church, Luther's church, had it all backwards. You don't need to persuade God to be gracious by praying, by attending masses, by going to confession, by fasting, and and through self-flagellation. God is already gracious. You don't have to persuade God to be loving because God is love. God sent the only begotten Son not to condemn, but as an expression of love, to save out of the depth of God's love. And so it was the sale of something called indulgences that set Luther over the top. These were little certificates. Indulgences were issued by the church and promised forgiveness and a reduced time in purgatory. And all the proceeds for all of these sales were going to help to build uh, that beautiful church in Rome. You see, you could buy indulgences for yourself, your departed relatives, and salesmen traveled from town to town hawking indulgences on the street corner. Oh, wouldn't it be great if you could have every sin you've ever done just forgiven by going down to the corner of Marlboro and, and Silver Spring and giving someone some money and got a certificate that says, no, you're golden, you're you're good. Luther had a problem with that. And when the salespeople came to Wittenberg where Luther was teaching theology, he went to his study, he was outraged, and he wrote this critique of indulgences, the entire system whereby the church seemed to be offering access to God's grace by good works, by praying, by fasting, by almsgiving, and by paying it off. Luther had a lot to say And he wrote down 95 of these critiques or these theses. He marched them down to the castle church doors in Wittenberg and nailed them to the door with an offer that anyone who wanted to come and debate, come. Well, we know the rest is history. The church excommunicated Luther, persuaded the Holy Roman Empire to condemn him as a heretic, to put a price on his head, and Luther had to go into hiding at a castle in a different town. That castle, the mighty fortress, where instead of feeling sorry for himself, he spent every minute that he could translating the Bible into his own native tongue so that the people could actually read the words that were there, words that were, they were only hearing in Latin, to understand Scripture for themselves. And Luther's ideas started to spread like wildfire throughout Germany, the Low Countries, France, Switzerland, Great Britain. Justified by faith, not your money, not your actions. You cannot buy grace. It was radical, really. You don't need a priest or a pope to confirm forgiveness. I can go straight to God who's already offered that forgiveness to me. You see, what Luther finally understood was that Jesus came to reveal to us in a superabundance How living and loving is the fundamental power of the universe and hence how worthy of receiving our trust. Luther argued that salvation could not be obtained through indulgences, through works of charity, by making pilgrimages or any kind of act of piety or devotion. He argued that it was salvation that was an act of God given by grace through Jesus Christ. God has already provided for our salvation by the birth, the life, the perfect life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. 
and that salvation is ours to accept through faith, not to achieve through works. We are justified, and we can justify our existence not by our achievements or wealth or status. Simply, it's a gift of God. Our lives have meaning, not only in success, this means, but also in failure. Not just in prodigious achievements, but in declining achievements. Acceptance from others, but rejection. When destroyed by opponents and deserted by friends, judgments faulty and judgments wrong, we are God's loved ones, and there's nothing that can separate us from that love of God. Now, we live in a world that is far different than Luther's world in a lot of ways. I mean, 500 years does move history along into something new, but in a world of frustration, anxiety, fear, and uncertainty, confused meanings and ambiguity in the very word salvation, despite all that, we can trust. We can trust. We are not saved by what we do, but by who we trust. Trust, which in the New Testament goes by the name of faith. Being a Christian is not about being good enough so that God can love you. But friends, I want you to hear this, but being grateful that God already loves you. It is not about guilt and fear of ultimate rejection, but it is about joy and peace because of God's unconditional love. I think it's a turning point for all of God's children, a turning point for all of us here, all of you at home, a turning point when we finally get it that God is merciful and kind, that our God is full of grace and compassion and forgiveness and wants from me and from you and from all of us lives lived in joyful gratitude. Those phrases, sin and guilt and forgiveness, may not resonate. Luther was concerned about these things, though, sin and guilt. Today, many people are not. For many today, their conscience is like their appendix. It's a non-functioning appendage. Many contemporary people in the pew basically feel, I'm a good person. Admittedly, I, I mess up once in a while, but, but for the most part, I, I keep the commandments. But there is more. God has pledged, God has made a covenant to love us with a love that is everlasting, that knows no end to the depth of it. What justification by faith essentially means is our acceptance with God is not the goal. No, it's not the goal, but it is the starting point of our Christian life. Our acceptance with God is not something to be hoped for or worked for or striven for. It is what God has already done for us through Jesus Christ. Faith is our acceptance in humility and in gratitude of God's acceptance of us. You see, the church are those who know that God accepts them and from that base Accept one another in the same way, accepting as they are accepted, forgiving as they are forgiven, loving as they are loved. As one seminary professor wrote, God in God's mercy sets the rejected ones of the earth into a community in which each receives the other as all have been received by God. The climate of any authentic church is controlled by the love of God. Acceptance is not conditioned upon whether somebody qualifies by the size of the wallet, the impressiveness of achievement, or even moral standing. The church, he concludes, that God intended is a community where each receives the other as all have been received by God. 
And as God has loved us, so too we ought to love one another. Justified by faith, free gift. But there is one more thing I need us to realize about the Reformation. You see, the principle involved is that the church is a human institution, and as a human institution, mistakes can happen. Therefore, Reformation is continuing. Reformation, friends, is an ongoing thing. Today is an anniversary, not in the sense that we celebrate something that happened, but something that began and continues to happen. For Luther, yes, it was about justification by faith, but reform continues. It must continue because our work is not done. True heirs of the Reformation of the genuine children of Luther, Calvin, Wesley, Zwingli, and others are those who, listen to this, continue to ask questions today out of a zeal and love for the truth. And so we ask questions. What is God saying to us today? What must we do to reform the church today? A mighty fortress is our God, not a bulwark against change, but a sustaining grace that pricks our comfort with the demand for renewal while at the same time providing the strength and resources to live life as God's covenant people, faithful in our day, no matter what the flood of mortal ills prevail, as he wrote. Now, as United Methodists today, nearly 500 years after the start of the Reformation, we have to ask, what is its significance to us? Why do we even observe it? After all, we're not the descendants of Luther. Our roots are deeply within the Anglican tradition. Both John and Charles Wesley were, were priests in the Church of England. Our cousins aren't Lutherans. Our cousins are Episcopalians. Well, there are a number of reasons why we should observe this day. You see, the themes of reform, the themes of the Reformation remain great themes in principle in our own faith journey today. The great schism that occurred in the church remains with us. Our fractured denominations have entered into dialogue and cooperative initiatives that have brought us even closer together. And so today we may observe Reformation Day with a sense of moving, moving forward toward unity and community. It is an opportunity to repent of the sins and excesses of the past and to celebrate our common faith, even if we still cannot uh, celebrate a common ritual and sacrament. Reformation today can represent healing of old wounds as together we all work to build and strengthen Christ's church and love one another as Christ has loved us. As the people of the United Methodist Church, we actually have a structure that not only enables reform, it, it calls for it. We have this book that every four years we, we come together, we, we debate it. And that book is living, it is breathing, it is constantly up for reform. There is not just one person who sits on a special seat that makes a dictation for our entire denomination. No, it's the people of the United Methodist Church, laity and clergy, that can bring about this reform. And some reforms have happened. The ordination of women the acknowledgement that God can call them and set them aside for holy tasks. The coming together of a central conference into one united church to help try and ease the stress of racism. 
the discipline, the freedom to change as our human understandings change. Just yesterday, we had a long meeting, nine to five. It was a virtual meeting. It was our annual conference where the leadership of the conference and the bishop have an opportunity to speak to us and the people of the, the state of Wisconsin and their Methodists have a chance to respond. And we know that there was great reform that was being discussed before the whole COVID thing hit and the world kind of shut down. There's going to be a lot of reform coming within the, the world that is known as Methodism. And we pray that all that reform is born directly from a love and a zeal for the truth. The truth about who God is, the truth about, about who we are, the worth that is a part of every single human life. We have work to do. It is our spirit. So yes, today is Reformation Sunday, a day when we think about the sacrifices made and and the many, many risks taken, not only by Martin Luther, but, but all those reformers in the 15th and 16th century. We celebrate on this day the church that was, but we also celebrate the church that is, and because of the spirit of reformation, we can celebrate the church that will be, the church we leave for our ancestors. And so, yes, we give thanks for living in a time and place where we experience great freedom to express our religious belief, that we can gather and have expressions without fear of, of severe persecution. But it is our prayer that God would help us to strengthen our own faith, but also to strengthen our acceptance of those who think differently than we do. The differences that exist among us only prove what one has called the extravagant mosaic beauty of God's creation. We are, all of us, children of God, creatures of a creator that knows and loves each and every one of us. History has proven that we may never be able to predict where our journey through this life may take us, but that our journey will always be filled with God's grace as we heard in our call to worship, change is our constant companion. And so we ask, what does God have in store for us? And if we ask that question, we'll all come to know that God seeks to form and to reform our lives anew as lives of love and service. And so let us, friends, make sure we do everything we can to take this journey together. Amen. And so I'm going to invite our chancel choir, the, the, the small choir that we have. I so miss the days of all those seats and the, the, the robes, but I invite our choir to come on up and to lead us at home in the hymn, Ask Ye What Great Thing I Know.